Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode number 96. And today we are talking about the incredibly specific language of food safety. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Development Institute podcast, where we serve up truth so that you can build the profitable, sustainable food business you've always dreamed of. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Proofing Box for all our new members here. If you are listening to the podcast on your favorite podcast method of choice, come over to Facebook and join us on the Proofing Box. We are having a whole lot of fun over there because... What's more fun than facilities and process and people? Nothing, I tell you. So I record the podcast over there as a Facebook Live, and then I do office hours. And you can come and ask questions. You don't have to be a paying client to ask questions, though I do get paying clients who come to ask questions. (laughs) And we have lots of fun stuff to talk about today. Fun stuff that we are doing in the Proofing Box. I am doing a 30-day challenge all around policies based on risk in your facility. This is an incredibly important concept for you to understand. If you are trying to pass an audit, you know, a global markets program audit, all starts with the risk analysis of your facility, what policies you make out of it, and then what procedures come from those policies. And that's what we're talking about in the proofing box. And so I'm going live every day for 30 days. So this is actually my second live in the proofing box today. Uh, All about, you know, really this concept around around how we uh, build wealth and community and compliance uh, and how that's gonna change food and food distribution and access to food and the whole conversation. It's super important. So anyway, and we have, and we have a lot of fun doing it. So, cause I mean, somebody has to make all this stuff fun. Why not me? So welcome to all of our, all of our new folks, all of our new listeners and come on over and do that 30 day challenge with us. And of course, you know what to do if you want to take the work deeper, book a blueprint call with me. I am taking on clients and I would love to work one-on-one with you so that you can pass your audit, so that you can get that USDA grant of inspection, so that you can write your preventive controls plan. You can do all of those things. We have a really amazing, amazing time. And you're going to hear some about what we do in the power group. That's my one-on-one and group coaching. I kind of do a hybrid model. and you'll hear you'll hear kind of like more about that if you join us for that 30-day challenge. Okay, so on today's podcast, we are talking about the language of food safety. And I think one of the things that happens with people is that they get very overwhelmed by the language in food safety because it was written by pinheads like me, people with lots of letters after their last name. So if you're new to our universe, I have, I'm a, I have a doctorate in veterinary medicine. I paid a lot of money for my long Latinate words, and now I'm spending a lot of time excising them from my language. It's super fun and not at all challenging, she says with a great deal of sarcasm. But what happened is, is that when, you know, scientists like precise words, we have a culture of precise words, because words have meanings. And that's a lot of actually what we're covering here is the meanings, the precise meanings of words. 
Because a lot of times the words don't mean what you think it means. So Princess Bride references, you know, like being brought into it. The language we use in food safety is incredibly important. I just went through a client's HACCP plan and took out the word control. And I'm going to talk about that a lot because control means something very, very specific. So what I want to start with is the history of how we got here. Okay, because a lot of y'all find yourself plopped in the middle of all of these regulations with like no context. Uh, And while the preventive controls class I teach and the HACCP courses I teach give a lot of that context, I want to add a little bit of color to that. And the first piece of color to add to that is, is that food safety actually comes from people like me. I am a veteran veterinarian. And way back in the day, when we were putting astronauts up into space, it was the veterinarians working in the army and working with warrant officers in the Natick Food Labs out in Natick, Massachusetts, and working with Pillsbury that was trying to create the food to send into space with the astronauts. And what was happening was, was they were doing so much product destruction, like they were sampling so much finished product, they didn't have enough food to send into space with the astronauts. So you can see the problem, right? There are many, many problems with finished product testing as your um, go, no go um, decision point. And we talk a lot about that in the HACCP classes, but you can't have finished product testing really as your go, no go, because you can't test, you'll end up testing so much food, you won't have any leftover to sell. All right, it's really important you guys understand that and don't rely on finished product testing. But because they were relying on finished product testing and they didn't have enough to enough food to send up with the astronauts, they literally had to find a different way. They had to think outside the box. Now, these are scientists. These are food scientists. We don't think outside the box. We think inside the box. We love the box. The box is our friend. But they were working with people who couldn't think outside the box because the box hadn't been invented yet. And those were the NASA scientists. And so the, the folks at the Natick Food Labs and at Pillsbury collaborated with NASA and said, wait, how do you do it? How do you get rockets into space? Because finished product testing for rocketry is launch. And we can't figure out whether or not the rocket works at launch, guys, because that leads to disaster, right? We've, had, we've lost astronauts that way. And so they, they came to formalize the system, and it's called failure mode effect analysis, all right? Failure mode effect analysis is a long Latinate way of saying, where is this going to screw up and how do we prevent it? That, my friends, is HACCP planning. Where is my system going to screw up and how can I prevent it? Now, if you want to have that whole conversation, I actually did a whole podcast series starting in November on how to do a HACCP plan. It's all in the podcast. Just go back. It's in the videos on the proofing box. It's on the, you know, podcast feed or whatever. Go back and listen to that. You can walk through the whole HACCP planning process. But what I want to talk about today is, is how, so like, then how did we get to where we are? So we started with NASA and failure mode effect analysis, and now we are at the mega reg, the preventive controls plan as it's, as it's promulgated in, you know, Canada and Europe and in America, it's all theme and variations on the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And we got here because a lot of people who spend a lot of time in laboratories and not a whole lot of time with people like you 
decided this is the way we're going to keep people healthy and safe. A lot of it does come from the military. You know, I had a buddy who was in Fallujah in 2006 with the Marine Corps, and he was in charge of a FOB, it's called, a forward operating base outside Fallujah, and they went down to 75% fighting strength because of foodborne illness in Fallujah in 2006. That is frightening. Like, they were literally frightened for their lives because the guys in their, the guys in the FOB were puking their guts out. This is not good. So this is, I mean, like food safety is national security. I promise you. I know people think I'm like really strange for saying that, but I promise you food safety is national security. I should probably do a whole podcast on that. And so this HACCP system is incredibly important because it says, where is this going to screw up and how can we prevent it? And that all of the words in HACCP mean something. But what ended up happening is because of internecine warfare between departments and because of siloization, so compartmentalization, people not talking to each other, people not recognizing that they needed to talk to each other. I wouldn't be particularly surprised if inter-school and PhD rivalry came into this. Um, because that's how scientists are. They're like a lot of big fish in little ponds and they can be really protective and things like that. And what ended up happening is, is that they brought this system. It was in use in, in, um, in a lot of, in, in a lot of industry and they kept developing it. And then in the early seventies, there was a problem with the manufacturer of Vichy Soit Soup. Uh, um, and, uh, that's potato and leek soup. And, and, and of course, potatoes and leeks, they come from the ground. This was a canned soup. Okay, so I hope all of you are automatically thinking botulism, right? And there was a soup manufacturer in the early 70s that killed a bunch of people with botulism in their, in their um, uh, Vichy Swat. And the FDA went in there, and it turns out the FDA didn't have any jurisdiction um, to shut these people down, even though their manufacturing process was killing people. So they had to fix that. That stuff takes time. Then they had to fix, then they had to come out with something called the low acid canned food regulation because there were no time and temperature and pressure things for industry to follow. There was no requirement that anything be documented. There was no requirement that anybody that knew what they were talking about uh, um, set your your limits on time and temperature and pressure and so they had to fix all that and it took a long time okay and then what happened was was they recognized there was a huge problem in the fisheries industry because the fisheries industry was also making people sick with botulism and smoked fish and so over in the fda they decided to implement HACCP planning but they themselves didn't go about it within in a robust manner now i'm sure they did the best that they could right but they didn't go about it in a robust and documented manner. And so they created HACCP planning, but they didn't follow the seven steps of HACCP planning or the 12 steps kind of depending upon how you look at it. So the first formalized legally required HACCP planning was over in fisheries, under FDA fisheries. And it's, it's, it's done by CFSAN, the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. And what they did was, was they said, all that we care about is the critical control points and the critical limits 
and the monitoring of those critical limits. Yes, there are other things that we have to worry about. Let's call those sanitary control procedures. As long as you have, you know, a relatively clean facility and good water and separation of like your toileting facilities and things like that, you're good. It's not a big deal. Because fisheries, you have to understand at that time, you know, in Maine, they were they were picking crab meat on dirt floors and wood on wood tables. They were picking fully cooked crab meat to sell. Okay. Um, and there were, and, and, you know, not as many people died as you might have thought, but people did die. And so they implemented HACCP over in the FDA, okay? And they defined a HACCP plan over in the FDA only as the documentation of the critical control points, critical limits, monitoring, and verification, and then they said this doesn't apply to anybody or anything else. And so they took that literally. Fast forward another decade, and in the early 90s, the Odawala Juice Company killed a bunch of people with shigatoxin E. coli in their unpasteurized juices. And that was the impetus to get the juice HACCP plan passed. Okay, because all this stuff has to get passed by Congress. Well, by then, industry and academia had advanced their knowledge on systems. And so when they, they changed the definition of HACCP and they said, no, 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 HACCP starts with form your team. And it goes through the five pre-steps of HACCP. And then the sixth step of HACCP is do a hazard analysis. In fisheries HACCP, you have to do a hazard analysis. You don't have to write it down. Now, how you do a hazard analysis without writing it down is pretty much beyond me. I am not that smart, but it's not legally required. Over in Juice Hap is Juice Hassip. It is absolutely critically. Um, um, it is absolutely required to have a documented hazard analysis. So then you have a HACCP plan in two different regulatory bodies of the FDA. That means two different things, okay? So all of a sudden, we're already creating a lot of confusion. It's a different law. It's different products. A HACCP plan over on fisheries means like one, you could write a whole HACCP plan on like one piece of paper for the fisheries. You definitely can't over on juice, okay? And then kind of concomitantly with that, uh, Jack in the Box killed four kids with shigatoxin E. coli in hamburgers with inspected meat, okay, and FSIS, Food Safety Inspection Service, was publicly humiliated because everybody said, how can this meat have shigatoxin E. coli in it if it's inspected? There's huge amounts of politics that went behind this, but the long and the shorter, short of it is, is that the there was a lawyer out in um, Seattle, Portland or Seattle, I remember, um, Bill Marler, who made his name by suing the snot out of FSIS and Jack in the Box and forcing changes. And then we got the mega reg, okay? And, or the pathogen control, the, you know, like the, the pathogen control regulation over under FSIS, under the USCA. Those were the three major HACCPs, okay? They are all very different. FSIS said you have to follow the 12 steps of your HACCP program, um, but we're leaving it up to you what the critical control points are and the critical limits are, and we're going to promulgate uh, what we want, uh, not by regulation, because by the time the mega reg was passed, uh, 
and implemented, it had gone, we were now passed, so the mega reg was passed in 96. It got implemented over about the next five years. That was the time of great changes in um, commodity meat pricing and consolidation of the meat industry. 9-11 happened, and then Bill Clinton was elected president. No, no, it happened, the mega reg passed while Bill Clinton was elected president. And then, um, and then George Bush was elected president. And then Congress kind of fell apart. Okay, we had, Congress started falling apart under the, under the Clinton administration, and then it really fell apart. There was like, I mean, you wanna talk internecine warfare. Well, what's been happening in the 20 years, uh, you know, in the new century is that it is very difficult to get anything passed uh, in Congress. And so FSIS abdicated going through any congressional review and getting laws passed. It went through what we call, um, it it goes through um, um, guidance and it issues guidance documents. And it says guidance has the same, they take the, they take the, um, the approach that guidance has the same effect as law. Now, if you talk to people, Dr. Mike Fisher, he says guidance doesn't have the effect of law. It doesn't. I agree with him. It really, really doesn't. However, in reality, you can either fight the guidance or you can go along with it and grow your business because they will stop you and they have the power to stop you. Sure, you can run it all the way up the flag chain, but while you're running it all the way up the flag chain, you're not making any money. And so... That's where we land right now. So in HACCP law, we have fisheries HACCP, which means one thing. We have juice HACCP, okay, which is predicated and is pretty much only has regulations backing it, um, and the juice HACCP law. And then we have FSIS and meat and poultry HACCP. And that is backed up by all of these guidance documents that you have to follow. So is it any wonder people are confused? Absolutely not, absolutely not. I mean, I do this, I teach this day in and day out and I still screw up. I was on the phone with somebody and I was trying to like, remember like the third part of appendix B under FSIS and you know, I mean, it's just crazy. Like there's nobody, there's nobody that can keep all of this stuff in their head. Um, and so I try not to, but that's the history of how we got here. But then in the nitty gritty of it, in the, in the, you know, like that's the 20,000 foot version in the, I'm writing my HACCP plan version. There are some language that you need to know. Okay. And the first thing that you need to know is the word control. It's incredibly important that you only use the word control correctly. Okay. And I fix a lot of HACCP plans that do this. HACCP stands for hazard analysis for critical control points. And control is incredibly important, as I have said. And control means that you have mitigated the risk to almost near zero of a hazard occurring. So then that gets to the question of what's a hazard. That also is a very specific definition. If a hazard needs control, that means the hazard is reasonably likely to occur. Well, what the hell does reasonably likely to occur mean? That also has very strict usage. So let's go through all of that. There is a process by which we do this and it's called a hazard analysis. And you can go listen to the hazard analysis podcast and I walk you through the process. But the question is, what you do is, is you identify your hazards. Your hazards come from risks. So risks are 30,000 feet, hazards are like 10 feet. Hazards are the physical, chemical, microbial things that can go wrong with your food. You gotta identify your hazards, okay? And then you've gotta figure out whether or not your hazards are reasonably likely to occur. If they have happened in the past in your facility, they're reasonably likely to occur. 
if your regulatory body tells you they're reasonably likely to occur, they're reasonably likely to occur. If you do a Google search on your food with the word recall and your food has been recalled for a hazard, it is reasonably likely to occur. Okay, reasonably likely means that a regular person could see this as something that could potentially happen. It does actually just mean that. So now we've de now we defined hazard and reasonably likely. So then how are things reasonably likely to occur or not reasonably likely to occur? Because a hazard must be controlled if it is reasonably likely to occur. Well, if you have a program in place, like a standard operating procedure that functions, your hazards are not reasonably likely to occur. Please do not put your sanitation standard operating procedures control hazards. They don't unless you're doing fisheries. Sanitation controls hazards in fisheries. It does not anywhere else, okay? Sanitation preventive controls controls hazards in a preventive control plan. Not anywhere else, okay? This language is very, very important. So if you are controlling something, that means it is reasonably likely to occur, okay? We write over an FSIS, a listeria control plan, because in a ready-to-eat plant, they have determined listeria is reasonably likely to occur. We write a sanitary preventive control plan over on the preventive control side of the house because listeria is reasonably likely to occur in a ready-to-eat plant, and we have to control for it. If it is reasonably likely to occur, you've got to control for it, okay? And control means that you reduce the hazard so that it's not detectable so that it doesn't ever pop up again. There are some shades on this over on preventive controls. And if you're wondering about that, go take the preventive controls class. But if you control a hazard, you don't ever have to recontrol it. Okay. If you kill all the shigatoxin E. coli in your product and it, it never gets introduced again, then that hazard is controlled. If it gets introduced again, then the hazard isn't controlled. And we've always got to control hazards as far down in the process as we can. Okay? So control means something very, very specific. Controls have, are defined by critical control points, and they have critical limits. All right? And critical limits are, of course, measurable things that demonstrate that you've controlled something. Ha anything that needs controlling and needs a critical limit also needs to be monitored. Monitored really means something. It's a, a planned series of actions that documents that you've met your critical limit and your food isn't adulterated. Mismonitoring, it's the same thing as missing your critical limit. Then all of this stuff, so that is, you know, that gives you some idea about all of the very, very careful language that we have to use. And then once we do all that, we have to verify and validate. Um, okay. Ronald Reagan famously once said, trust but verify. Okay. I use that a lot in my teaching. We've got to verify. Verify means tell the truth. And verification has a very specific, it's not just as overall like, yeah, I'm really telling the truth. Verification is very, very specific. You have to review your records. You have to watch people doing what they're supposed to be doing and determine whether or not they're doing it. Okay. You have to accuracy check all of your stuff, your thermometers, your water activity meters, your, your pH meters, your, you know, like all the stuff. You got you to gotta accuracy check those, okay? Over on the FDA side of the house, they consider finished product testing a method of verification. It absolutely, absolutely can be, uh, okay? But only in combination with the other things. So that's what verifying is. 
Then there's validation, and validation is actually a sub-step of verification that we do first, okay? And you hear me talking about 90-day validations an awful lot. A validation is a scientific study that backs up and gives you the truth of what you're doing. You cannot make this stuff up. You know, when I tell somebody that in order to control for listeria in... um, uh, in in uh, lobsters, you have to cook your product to 185 degrees on an instant read thermometer. I did not make that up. That is written down in the Fisheries Hazard Guide by our friends at the FDA. Okay. When you validate something, somebody with lots of letters after their last name or regulatory body has given you a piece of paper that says your process, okay, or if you follow this process, which is kind of how we do it over in small food, will control for hazards. The end. That's what you have to do, okay? So that's validation. When we use these words, we have to use them accurately because the FDA and the USDA and your auditor will hold you to those definitions and we all have to be speaking the same language. All right, my friends, that's what we got for the podcast today. I am deeply happy that you joined me. And uh, if you want to stick around for office hours, I am here for office hours. Otherwise than that, I will see you on the proofing box. Book a call to join the power group and you will not be alone while you write all of this stuff and get through all of these regulations and all of your audits. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. You have a great day. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. Be sure to join us in the Proofing Box, a private Facebook page for food producers filled with valuable information and technical tips. Grow your business by learning from people just like you, all under the guidance of a food safety expert.